good morning to you. Great words that we were singing. My goodness. And secondly, I want you to know that I could have had the men text the word hog. I had a lot of options. Piggy, porky. But I went with the very classic, measured, just like me, pig. Yeah, glad to be with you this morning. If you would, uh, turn your Bibles to Hebrew chapter 6. We're going to camp out there this morning as we continue teaching through the book of Hebrews. I encourage you with all my heart to grab your notes. Um, it's just a way to stay engaged and have something to work with uh, for the rest of the week and take notes. I want to start off by asking you a question. True, false. You don't have to raise your hand. Just answer in your heart, the Lord knows, true or false, regarding this statement that I'm about to say. Okay, you ready? Once saved, always saved. True or false? Anybody want to be heroic, you can shout it out. Okay. Yeah, if you don't know that one, don't say it, right? But I'd love you to say it. Now, let me read Hebrews 6, 4 through 12. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So after reading and hearing that, how would you now answer that question? Folks, I want to let you know that we have come to the third out of five total, what the writer of Hebrews has called warning passages. And we are and have before us Hebrews 6, 4 through 12, one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible to interpret. Many scholars would agree. These kind of difficult texts certainly present you and I with interpret, interpreting and applying them correctly, present us with challenges. But what they also do is they give others an opportunity to twist and to distort them so that these kind of texts become proof texts, if you would, for many doctrinal errors. So as we approach this text, as we always do, we want to do so with humility and with carefulness. 
because this text has been the center of heated debates and discussions for all of church history. So when we do, we have to do good Bible study. We have to ask questions like, who are the folks being addressed in Hebrews 6? Are they real, genuine Christians? And what was the sin that made it impossible to restore them to repentance? And if they were genuine Christians, then it seems that a person actually can lose their salvation. And what does the rest of Scripture say about eternal security? Or once saved, always saved? Because we know, I think we know, one of the key Bible interpretation methods is this. We are to interpret difficult passages like this, foggy passages, unclear passages like this in light of all of Scripture or the crystal clear passages that speak to once saved, always saved. So these questions and more are brought to the surface with really incredible force here in Hebrews 6 as we study this text. And what we don't want to do is make the mistake of coming up with some pat answer that takes the bite and the sting and the force and the teeth out of this warning passage. So let's start with, as your note says, the context, because context is always king. We got to remind ourselves of Hebrews 6, 4 through 12. <clears throat> The author here of Hebrews, as we said several times, is writing to Jewish Christians who as lifelong Jews, they were convinced deep in their hearts of the greatness of Judaism. You can imagine, they've grown up with that their entire life, but they had genuine conversions to Christ. No doubt they had converted to Christ, so we now call them Jewish Christians. But part of their problem was they were mixing uh, at times equal and at other times unequal terms, Jesus with Judaism. The mix and match there. And so the author's writing to clear those up. Or I could put it this way, they were mixing the tangible or what they could see, things like temple worship, the high priest, Jewish festivals and rituals versus the very real but invisible God through his son became greater than all their heroes of the faith. Even, we learned, superior to angels. And at the same time, they were being persecuted, remember, by their Jewish friends who had not converted and others. And their temptation, this is key, was to return to their old way of life and worship, to return to a salvation by works, to take the pressure off the persecution, and then go back home, if you would, to something that was familiar to them, to return to a salvation by works of yearly sacrifices, something they could see and touch and feel and experience right in front of them, versus to stay the course of trusting in the shed blood alone for their salvation. They wanted to go back home to the familiar, back to their old way of life and worship. Now, add to that, that's one thing. But Monty addressed another problem last week and did a great job with that in verses 5, 11 through 14. 
Yeah, they had another problem. The writer says they are dull of hearing or sluggish and lazy spiritually. He actually says they should be teachers by now, but instead they need to be taught the basic elementary things of Christ and the gospel and salvation. Or, we could put it this way, be taught, once saved, always saved. The push, in some ways, of Monty's passage last week, Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 1 through 3, was please, 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 for the love of Christ, grow up. So that's the context of our book this morning. Now I want to read again verses 4 through 6 so you can feel the weight and tension of this. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. What I've done this morning is give you four views. And I want you to know I am so much summarizing these. Matter of fact, I could have, with all I read and all that's out there that's yet to be read by me and many others, I could, mine and I could probably do 10 sermons with each view. So I want you to know it's not for a lack of material. So my, if I don't say all that needs to be said, it's because it's impossible, okay? So, but let me give you four historical views of this text, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. The first one is that you can lose your salvation. There are churches that believe that a genuine Christian can lose their salvation. So these folks would read Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, and they would say these are real Christians that the writer is speaking of who have walked away from Christ in some way for fashion so they can lose their salvation. But we have some practical problems with this view. And I'm just laying this view out for you. And that is, first, if you didn't do anything to earn your salvation, then how in the world can you do anything to lose it? At what point in your sin do you cross the line where you can lose your salvation? And this is a pretty legitimate question. Who knows where that line is? Who determines that? And another problem is, what do you do with the nearly 300 verses that speak very specifically and crystal clear on salvation in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone? Versus the five to six to seven verses that are cloudy on that issue. Let me give you some of those security verses that speak very clear. John 6, 39 through 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Jesus is speaking, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 10, 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, 
and no one would snatch them out of my hand. This is the double hand approach. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So you have the believer in the hand of Christ and then you have the father who has the Christ and the believer in his hand. Sounds pretty secure to me. Then you have Romans 8, 29 through 39 that asks the question, who shall separate the believer from the love of Christ? He lists an amazing amount of things and his conclusion was, Nothing. It's a powerful passage. You have, of course, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We're saved by grace, not by works. Then you have Jude 24. And I'm just skimming the surface here, obviously, that says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. I think I agree with Vody Bauckham here. When he says, folks, if you could lose your salvation, you would. (laughs) The next view, though, and I want to be fair to all these, is you don't lose your salvation, but you lose your rewards. This view says these are real, genuine Christians who cannot lose their salvation, but who are immature, and they make their case. Here's how they make their case from the illustration that the writer of Hebrews gives about the fields in verses 7 and 8. And they say the thorns and thistles being burned up there is in correlation with 1 Corinthians 3.15 that says your rewards will be burned up if they're not unto Christ. So, But when I look at this text and others much smarter than me, I see the re-crucifying of Christ and putting him to open shame sounds very serious at a high level. Very much more than just losing some rewards. This view, in my opinion, takes the teeth and the bite out of the warning that the author certainly intends in Hebrews 6. And then the third view is what many call the hypothetical view. And it says that the writer is speaking of something that cannot happen, but is using it as a warning, if you would, as a threat in hopes that it will motivate this group of Jewish Christians to press on to maturity. It does not believe that a genuine believer can lose their salvation. But I'm just saying, as I read it, and as I read others who read it, and others who commented on it, it's just confusing. A hypothetical warning to me is no warning at all. If it's impossible to do something, you don't need to warn me about it. Does that make sense? Somebody said, "Mm mm-hmm. I mean... If you came up to me and warned me, Jeff, do not turn into a tiger. It's okay. Monty, we got a problem with somebody in the church, right? Don't go to the moon. Jeff, don't get pregnant. I'm trying to be culturally relevant here. You don't need to warn me of those things because if I could turn into a tiger, a Clemson tiger, I just might take that up, right? I can't. So the hypothetical view. The fourth view is the unbeliever view. The writer is speaking to those who are involved in the Hebrew church. 
in all of its comings and goings, but are not truly saved. They appear to be saved, but at some point, usually under a crisis, the crisis of persecution, the crisis of being in an unfamiliar environment, they show their true colors and they come out and abandon their faith in Christ and return either either to, in our case, Judaism, or they return to their way of life as they have known it before Christ. And in doing so, the author says they stand with those who crucify the Son of God, and we'll unpack that later. So they end up putting shame to Christ. Practically speaking for us, it might sound like this in our culture today. I tried faith in Christ, but it did not work. It was a sham. I was on the inside. I grew up in the church. So I know what I'm talking about. That's called deconstruction in our world today. Biblically speaking, the word is apostasy. I have the definition for you at the top of your page here. It reads, apostasy is the rejection of Christ by one who has previously professed Christ. It is the anonym or opposite of conversion. It is deconversion. The word comes from the Greek word apostasia, which we get words like rebellion, abandonment, defection, turning away, and adultery. For such apostates, the writer of Hebrews in 6, here's the warning, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. They have hardened their hearts against the truth that they were exposed to. Now, a biblical illustration of that is when Paul writes the opening chapter of the book of Romans. Let me summarize for you some of those verses. I didn't have time to read them. But in Romans 1, I'm summarizing here Paul's words. God's wrath is revealed against those that suppress the truth about God that is clearly seen in creation so that they are without excuse. They knew there was a God but did not honor him nor thank him but instead became futile in their thinking. Therefore, God gave them up. God said, you want it that way? Take it to their own lust, and to a debased mind. I want you to know that this fourth view, this unbeliever view, is who we as a church believe that the writer of Hebrews is speaking to. It's not a perfect view. It has some unique problems. But in light of we, that we know in terms of all of Scripture, interpretative methods, it is by far, by far, the view that makes the most sense. So, I think it would be wise if we would, if we dug into it just a tad more. What do you think? Okay. So, the point there in your notes is, is possess versus profess. <clears throat> do you possess Christ or do you just profess him? Verses <clears throat> four through six. <clears throat> I want you to put your finger there and notice with me what these folks that he's speaking of have seen and heard and experienced in the Hebrew church. He says they've been enlightened, which means to shine light on God's ways in the Gospels. 
He says they have tasted of the heavenly gift, which means they have experienced the kindness of God and his people and of Christ himself. It says they have shared in the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit, there's only one. Apologize for heresy there. It said plural. Shared in the Holy Spirit, which means participating in worship with God's people. And they saw the gifts of the Spirit at work in the Hebrew church. Fourthly, it says they have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. I mean, they heard it taught well. They heard the gospel message taught well. And fifthly, it says they have experienced the powers of the age to come. That they saw miracles taking place in the Hebrew church to confirm, if you would, the validity of the gospel. And they saw people living for the age to come, living for eternity, as we would put it. And yet, they go back to trust in a system of works. A work salvation that the author of Hebrews has argued over and over and over again that is not better than the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not better than salvation by grace through faith in Christ. These people that he's speaking of with this potential apostasy, they're not hypocrites. We we all are hypocrites. All of us don't measure up to what we believe. (laughs) We're in that process of growth. These people are not, as we say in our southern churches, backsliders. When's the last time you heard the word backsliders? Some of you are like, back who, right? Ask the older folks. We all are in some ways. These people are not ones who through the temptations of Satan and the world and the flesh have fallen into some kind of grievous sin and is in need of godly discipline. For there are many of us here, myself included, that have walked through dark seasons and experienced this kind of sinful season in our spiritual journeys with Christ. But this person is one who has seen it and heard it all and has ultimately said, I will trust in something other than the shed blood of Jesus Christ to save me. In our case, for this audience in Hebrews, they are saying, I am going back and I'm going to trust in a works salvation, a Jewish system based on works that the writer of Hebrews and the Lord Jesus himself is now has said it is null and void. And in doing so, the writer of Hebrews says, they have re-crucified Christ. Here's what Hebrews 13, 12 describes what Jesus has done for us. You can write that down and read it later. Hebrews 13, 12. Jesus also suffered outside the gate that he might sanctify, which means to make us righteous, the people through his own blood. So when one turns their back on the cross... The cross of Christ that was designed to bring about righteousness, to make sinners righteous in the sight of a holy God, and instead says yes to the unrighteousness and worldliness and unbelief that nailed him there in the first place. The writer says you are re-crucifying the Lord Jesus over again. And add to that, these people have said that the fleeting pleasures of this world are 
worth more than Christ. And when they say that, they're actually agreeing with the ones who are screaming to crucify Christ. I want you to think about it with me for a minute. What more could shame Christ? And the author uses the word bring contempt, which simply is public mocking, than to have someone taste his goodness, be around it, taste his wisdom, taste his power, and then say, no, thank you. There is something better. And it's the old system I came from. Let me give you a biblical example, biblical examples and some modern day examples. Galatians 1. Mark that down, read it for yourself. Paul spent 18 months there in the city of Galatia. He planted a church. He shared the gospel with people. He discipled people. And after he left, these cats called the Judaizers, similar to this, came in and said the apostle Paul was absolutely wonderful. And everything he said about faith in Christ alone is absolutely correct. However, he just happened to leave something out. And that is that all the men have to be circumcised in order to be saved. So it was faith in Christ plus circumcision equals salvation. They added the work of circumcision which was an Old Testament picture of our baptism. So how did Paul respond to that? He was hot. He said this in verse 6, I'm shocked you are deserting Christ who called you by grace and instead are turning to a different gospel. Verse 8, he condemned the one who teaches this gospel of works. Verse 9, he double condemned the one who teaches this gospel of works. And in 5.12, he says, I wish those who teach a different gospel would castrate themselves. He was not unclear <laughs> about how he felt. Some biblical examples, Jesus put it this way in Matthew 7. Many will say to me, Lord, did we not do lots of stuff in your name? And Jesus said, what to them? I never knew you. Depart from me. Then we have Judas. Oh, my man Judas was around it, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. He was in the religious category with the Lord Jesus himself. We have Demas in 2 Timothy 4. Come to me soon because Demas is in love, Paul says, with this present world and has deserted me. That's apostasy. Now let's break it down to us in the church today. If we don't know this, I want to instruct you. Our churches all over the world, certainly in America, are full of cultural Christianity where people belong to churches so they can be seen as good people, even if they've never truly trusted in the Lord Jesus. They sing the hymns. They pray the prayers. They play on the church softball team, right? They teach Sunday school. They talk about Christian values. Well, at the same time, experience. And here's the key. Write this down. No conviction of sin and no desire to change. No desire to love what God loves and hate what God hates. Sin and secrets of every kind, but no conviction of sin. I grew up in this church. I know that church well. 
Let me give you exhibit A and exhibit B real quick. Ready? Exhibit A. I have a couple who's asked me to do premarital counseling. So I invite them in, and I go through their story and do all kind of stuff. And then the last couple questions is, I ask them, tell me where you are in terms of your sexual intimacy. Okay? I want to know where they are there because I want to help them. So exhibit A couple says, we're having sex. We've been having sex after the first month, and we've been dating several years. Okay? And that doesn't surprise me, right? I'm taking notes. Some of y'all are like, I'm never going to premarital counseling with this guy, right? <laughs> and then I asked them this next question. Well, let me ask you another question. If you were to stand before the Lord Jesus today and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And they say, I'm a good person. Uh, I don't know. And they have no conviction of sin. Yeah. Yeah. Are they a Christian? Exhibit B. You have a couple comes in just like them, premarital couple. I said, where you are, where are you in terms of sexual intimacy? And they say, we're sexually active. And tears start welling up. Their lip begins to tremble. And they say, and we hate it. We want to stop. We want to honor the Lord. And I asked them the Kennedy questions. What would you say to the Lord Jesus if he said, why should I let you in? And they say, I plead nothing but the blood of Christ. You tell me which one's a Christian and which one isn't. I would say exhibit A, I question highly whether they are saved. And question B, I think they are saved. And ultimately, only God knows, and they're immature, but they are desirous to honor Christ. Or, how about the nice person, the really nice moral person who can't answer that question about why should I let you in? They actually say, because, man, I'm a good dude. I'm a good lady. I'm a nice person. So what they've done in some ways They've said, it is belief in Jesus plus my niceness. Spurgeon put it this way to them. Throw away your self-righteousness, for there's no hope for you so long as you cling to it. The writer of Hebrews would say the same thing. So possess versus profess. And then fruitful versus fruitless, verse 7 and 8. The writer now gives us a picture of those who fall away. And I want you to notice this, it, it, this picture he gives. Of this, it's not a field that's got vegetation and all kind of things of life growing in it that are abundant, the abundant fruit growing in it, and then it lost it or loses it. It is a picture he paints here of two different fields. One is fruitful and blessed, and the other is barren, thorns and thistles and cursed. Two fields, fruitful and cursed. The point is here. If we have sat in church, so what he's trying to illustrate, 
with the light, the spirit, the word of God, the work of God coming to us and therefore blessing us and even in some way shaping who we are to some degree. But then we turn our back and ultimately walk away from Christ. Then we are like the field, he's saying, without vegetation of fruit. We're dead. We're always dead. And we will experience eternal judgment. Or John Calvin put it this way. Those who fall away have never been thoroughly embedded in Christ in the first place, but only had a slight and passing taste of it. Perseverance does not result in salvation, but is itself the result and evidence of salvation. Here in verse 7 and 8, they have drunk or drank up the rain, but the rain produced no life. They've been around it. They've been inoculated, but they don't have the disease. And then lastly, it's advanced versus abandoned. I love this. So encouraging after the strong warning. Notice there in 9 through 12, after laying out the real possibility that some in the church are not saved, that's a real possibility, and might fall into apostasy. And he tells them why he uses the word beloved. It is a term throughout the Bible that communicates believer that they are indeed saved. And he used the term better things that speaks of the things that go along with salvation. He is seeking the work God is doing in them. He's seeing the work God is doing in them outwardly, outwardly to his brothers and sisters in love and serving the saints. Notice that. And he exhorts them to be imitators of those who have believed in the promises of God. I want you to know I had parts of chapter 11, the Hebrew, the hall of faith from Hebrews 11, but I had to take it out because I wrote my sermon too long. I got to the end. I said, oh Lord, I got to take it out. So you got to go read. He's referencing here the saints of old that we sang about this morning. Go read Hebrews 11. Be imitators of them. They finished strong. They persevered. They were threatened with death, sawed in two, didn't matter. Stay the course, I'm coming home. He said, be like them. So in summary of verses 9 and 12, the writer of Hebrews believes that they are indeed true Christians and therefore will not commit apostasy and end up in a barren field. They will bear fruit. They will not fall away because their faith will persevere to the end and they will be fruitful. There's no doubt that the writer of Hebrews' main concern, his main concern is focused on getting these folks to persevere in the faith. In some ways, he's saying, yo, Yo, that means, I don't know what it means, but he's saying, yo, (laughs) Hebrew brothers and sisters, if you know you're in the race, you know you've been saved by the shed blood of Christ, by grace and not by works, for the love of Christ, keep running, because if you do keep running, it will be proof, persevering proof that you are a real Christ follower. Don't be sluggish. 
Don't let your spiritual life be stunted. Don't be lazy. Go and learn how to share your faith and tell it often, tell it well. Go and eat pig and pray and get to know other men. Live in community. Open your scriptures. Study the word of God. Get equipped. He's saying all that. Keep running. So what does this passage mean for us? A couple quick things. Man, I, I love this question because we don't ask it enough. We assume if you're showing up here that you're a Christian. And I, I want to apologize for that. Not in my heart, but I think we don't ask this question enough. And that is, am I really a Christian? Man, it's a great question to ask because it is the greatest question that you must answer. You do know that you can accept intellectually all the true facts about Jesus and not be a Christian. In Luke 4, even the demons acknowledged publicly who Jesus was. They said, you are the Son of God, the Christ. A plus 100 on the test. And yet we know they weren't. Mental assent won't do it. Being a Christian means believing both with your head and heart that you have no hope of salvation, of being accepted by a holy God on your own merit. And your cry for him is not some insurance policy to get you out of hell, to strike a deal with God, but to find eternal forgiveness and to experience Life transformation. And here's why. Because the spirit of the living God comes to indwell in you forever. And if he does anything, and he does lots of things, but if he does anything first and foremost, he will convict you of your sin and he will change the desires of your heart. You will desire what you did not used to desire. While now there's a, don't get me wrong, a very open battle and war with your old desires and the new ones. That's a sign that you are alive in Christ. So I want you to look for the conviction of sin. There's a book that I brought up here. It, it is the greatest one little read that I've ever read. It's called, How Can I Be Sure I'm a Christian? What the Bible Says About Assurance of Salvation by one of my seminary profs. Donald Whitney, man, settle the question. If you don't settle that question, if you're unsure, I'm going to tell you what it would do. It will seriously impede your Christian growth and maturity. To live on a yo-yo, am I in, am I not? Some of you may need to come to Christ. Some of you need to settle the question. Secondly, I think the passage tells us to confirm and rejoice in the beauty and the grace and the mercy and the comfort that your salvation does not depend on you. Can somebody say amen? amen. Yeah. After a really bad day, you can say with the psalmist, his mercies are new Every morning. 
He has forgiven your sins as far as the east is from the west. Spurgeon put it this way, the blood of Jesus is the death of despair. The blood of Jesus is the death of despair. No need for the believer to go into despair. We have an advocate. He never sleeps. He's 24-7 advocating on our behalf. They are mine. Boy, rejoice in that. Dispose of any self-righteousness that sounds like, God, I thank you that I'm not like them. Because by the grace of God go you and I. And then lastly, are you pressing on to maturity? Are you pressing on to maturity? Or are you lazy? Spiritually, just coasting, just chilling, chill, dog. Nobody wants them the tombstone. Jeff, chill, dog, spiritually, Patton. Right? Man, go for it. Go for it. Take a minute to consider what we've talked about this morning and make application as the Spirit of God would lead you.